Well, with what heaviness of heart must Mary Magdalene have approached the tomb where her mentor, her hero, had been lain dead and cold. All he had claimed to be the son of God, to be the good shepherd, the, the bread of life, the one whom God would glorify, all that now lay in tatters. He was dead and buried, and his enemies were rubbing their hands. And of course, if, if the gospel ended there, we wouldn't be here. Actually, none of, none of this would be here. For Jesus would have proved to be a sham, a fake, a fraud. You would never have heard of him. And to top it off for Mary, some creep has interfered with the dead body of Jesus. Verse 1, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. In fact, no one has interfered with the body of Jesus. Rather, he has risen, risen from the dead. And over the course of this remarkable, pulsating kind of profound chapter, John puts before us with great power and clarity three things. The claim of the resurrection that Jesus Christ has been raised in a transformed bodily manner. Secondly, the, the meaning of the resurrection, which takes place, John says, twice on the first day of the week. And then third, the mission of the resurrection, that as the Father sent Jesus, so now he sends us, his disciples. And we'll look at each of these in turn. So first then, the claim of the resurrection. Uh, Peter's threefold denial of Jesus, uh, I think interestingly, has not led to his exclusion from the group of disciples. And he is the one to whom Mary goes when she, in panic, sees the tomb is empty. Uh, he's, he's a bit of a, a, a flutterer. You know, you know those sort of people who, when things go wrong, kind of gets a bit het up. Uh, and so he starts sprinting. Uh, it's not a normal mode of operations for a respectable Jewish man. He races with the other disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, our author. Uh, and the scene is more than a little comic, and it's meant to be more than a little comic. We get the Bruce McAvaney commentary uh, on the race, uh, the hesitation, the plunging in of Peter, so typical, and especially the status of the burial wrappings. A lot of, lot of focus on the burial wrappings, don't you think? In verse 3, then Peter and the other disciples set out and went toward the tomb, the two were running together, but the other disciple, he's younger, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. What's the deal with the linen wrappings? Well, actually, we're meant to hear a contrast with the other resurrection 
account that we have in John's Gospel, that of Lazarus. Uh, There are lots of parallels, uh, which is what draws your attention to the link. Uh, The same unusual and rare word is used uh, for headcloth is used. But it's the differences that are all important. Do Do you remember John chapter 11? When Lazarus comes out of the tomb, he is still in his burial cloth, still wrapped around him. Lazarus's resurrection was a return to life. The burial cloth used to wrap the body of Jesus has been left behind because Jesus has left death behind. The same point is made as Mary meets the Lord who thinks uh, that the body has been stolen. This is the same Jesus that she meets. Someone who can be touched and held and known and spoken to. And yet, at the same time, it's Jesus with a difference, one who is not initially recognisable. The same point is made again when Jesus encounters Thomas. Thomas is uncertain as to who Jesus is, but, but it's clearly the same one who he's been following for these three years and who was crucified and died and was buried just a few days earlier with the holes in his hands and the wound in his side to prove it. It's very important to understand the claim that's being made here, this same but different Jesus. See, on the one hand, um, as I say, this is not some ordinary resurrection if there is such a thing as an ordinary resurrection. Um, This is not a resuscitation uh, like Lazarus uh, or the son of the widow from Nain in Luke chapter 7. There, they come back to life, but presumably they lived out their lives and died again. Uh, Nor are we being presented here with a kind of ghost, a a spiritual resurrection, as though Jesus the human stayed dead, but his 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 memory or or his his power or the the sort of the 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 spirit, the, the idea of Jesus rose in the disciples' hearts. Some say this. Um, the early believers knew what it was to encounter an apparition or a ghost. You can read about it in the book of Acts. But the one thing you can't do to a spirit is hold on to it. Which you could clearly with Jesus. You can't poke it. There's nothing to poke. Nor, crucially, was Jesus raised with an entirely discontinuous body that had no relation with his earthly body because, obviously enough, then the tomb would be still full of the bones of Jesus. Now, this view, which uh, is some hold, is, I guess, better than the first two, but it has some serious implications. In particular, what it implies is that God, in doing his new thing, ditches his old thing. That God, in new creation, ditches the old creation and replaces the created body of Jesus. And the reason that's so significant is it means that evil has won. 
that evil really has driven an immovable wedge of sin between God and creation. So that God has just sort of scrapped it and started all over again. It's, it's true that there is a discontinuity between the resurrection body of Jesus Christ and the body he went into the tomb with. But at the same time, there's continuity as well. The tomb is empty. It's the same person, the same individual. His body not discarded, not thrown onto the scrap heap, but rather transformed. Redeemed. Just as all the rest of creation will be redeemed too. Uh, one author has described it as transphysical, this resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's physical, it's the same body, but it's transformed. And, and the point is this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is, is the, the catalyst, the, the starting point for what you could rightly call the never-ending story. If Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead then he has nothing to say. He has nothing to offer. He's just another failed Messiah, just another talking head, and who needs yet one more talking head? But, because Jesus was raised from the dead, he has everything to say. That's why Christianity is an all-or-nothing kind of thing. Uh, as C.S. Lewis put it, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing that it cannot be is moderately important. Uh, you've got to remember, you know, Lewis was a, a moderate Englishman. Uh, and uh, the one thing that was moderate English like is moderation. And Lewis is making a very significant point here. The one thing Jesus Christ cannot be is moderately important. If he's still in his grave, then the whole thing is a nonsense. He was a liar. You should despise him as a con man. But because he is raised from the dead, then nothing less than the most important thing in all of human history and experience has happened. Nothing less than the first day of the rest of eternity for the universe. Now, it's perfectly possible to be fully aware of the resurrection of Jesus and to completely miss its meaning. Uh, survey after survey shows that 40-something percent of Australians still believe that the resurrection occurred as an historical event. And actually, all I say to that is fair enough. I mean, that's, that's, there's nothing actually terribly dramatic about that. Uh, the soldiers did, right? And for obvious reasons. Uh, in, in fact, the, the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a, as a bare fact was never really an issue at the time. No one disputed that it happened. They had to make up stories to try and pretend it didn't, but no one disputed that it did. It was all too obvious. Now, the issue is not so much whether you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. That's pretty straightforward. Rather, it's what you do with it. 
what it means. And, and John is entirely grandiose in his understanding of the meaning of Jesus' resurrection. If, if you know the Gospel of John, and actually be a really good thing to do over Easter, to kind of, having gotten to the end of it, we've been in John's Gospel now for a few weeks leading up to Easter, but, but if just take, what is it, 30, maybe 40 minutes, go back to the beginning and get the whole thing all together. And if you do that, you'll find that at the beginning that uh, John starts, he has this sort of prologue, like a, like a good storyteller, uh, with an obvious allusion to creation. His first three words are, in the beginning. And you don't have to be any grand Bible scholar to know that the very first words of the, all of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, are in the beginning. In other words, John signals to us that what he's going to do in his gospel is tell a new version of an old story. It's a new version because immediately the one that John puts at the beginning is Jesus. The word become flesh who was with God and was God. The one through whom all things were made. What we're dealing with in John's gospel, what he's offering to us actually, introduced in that prologue, is a new creation narrative. A new story by which we can live our lives, because all of our lives are lived according to a story. And it's achieved precisely through this one who was with God and was God and who has come to be with us. And what's announced in the prologue, you see, is achieved in the events of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so the parallels between the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the prologue and the Genesis narrative of creation are just too numerous uh, to, to mention, just a few. Um, for example, during the trial of Jesus on the sixth day of the last week, uh, John records Pilate saying, Behold the man. Just as on the sixth day of creation, humankind was created in God's image. Uh, John is careful to note that Mary goes to the tomb while it's still dark. But the true light, which is the light of all people, has not been overcome by the darkness of death. He's risen. There is light. And the prologue speaks of all who believe in Jesus' name receiving power to become children of God. And now Jesus speaks wonderful words of grace to Mary. Verse 17, Do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Up until now in the Gospel of John, Jesus has only spoken of my Father. But now in resurrection that opens up. And it's no surprise in verse 22 that Jesus breathes his own spirit onto his disciples just as, do you get it? God breathed the breath of life, the spirit of life into human nostrils in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. And the high point of this whole sequence of thought is the exclamation of Thomas. Having not been there with the disciples when Jesus came to them on the first day of the week, he refuses. He's, very, he's the scientist, right? He's the, uh, the, the scientist amongst them. He refuses to believe unless he sees and feels the risen Jesus. 
And Jesus is full of grace. He makes the offer. But apparently Thomas doesn't need to go through with it. The offer is enough. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Since the very beginning of the gospel, the introduction of Jesus, no one has recognised who Jesus really is. God, the only Son, close to the Father's heart, who has made the Father known. And now Thomas makes the confession of a true disciple of the resurrected Jesus Christ, my Lord and my God. And twice... John says that these events take place on the first day of the week. It's the eighth day. After the seventh day of rest for the creator in the tomb, now it's the eighth day. The first day of the rest of eternity has begun by the resurrection of Jesus. Everything that God created human beings to be and do in his world, to bear his image faithfully and fruitfully, to create and prosper and enjoy and worship. That glorious creation plan is being reset on its rails in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the first day of a new week. That's the meaning of Jesus' resurrection. Now notice what this is not quite. Uh, what, what we don't read here is that Jesus is raised. So, for example, uh, you, you don't need to be afraid of death. Or, or Jesus is raised uh, so that uh, we know that there really is a life after death. Th those things are true. Of course they're true, but they're secondary. The main point is rather Jesus is raised and that means a new day has begun, a new week, a new creation. His resurrection body, the first tiny little piece of a redeemed creation where blessing and fruitfulness reign where life and peace are normal, where death is defeated. Which third is why it needs to be implemented. You see, the gospel is not so much that there is a new possibility, the possibility for, say, the forgiveness of sins. Actually, the forgiveness of sins was always available under the old covenant, the first creation. Now, the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the announcement of an achievement, the most significant achievement since the creation of the universe, namely the recreation of the universe, the start of the future. And so the disciples, as disciples, as ordinary followers 
of Jesus are not just to be disciples. Jesus sends us all out. The, the Latin word for send is missio. And so all disciples are missionaries, sent ones. Verse 19, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples were, had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after that, he, uh, after he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. These are the marching orders of a disciple. This is our mission in life. You are, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, on a mission from God. It's just as simple as that. And what we see here is the mode and the means of that mission. Mode, we, we know how the Father sent the Son. It was in love. It was to the cross. It was to give himself up for the sake of others. It was in sacrifice. The Father sent the Son not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The Father sent the Son so that he should lose none that the Father gave him, but raise them up on the last day. This is how Jesus sends his disciples to love, to give themselves up for the sake of others, to take their place in the redeemed creation, not judgment. And so this Easter morning, will you again hear, will you, will you be reminded, will you allow it to sink more deeply into your soul and shape more fully the decisions you make, the priorities and values that you have? Jesus sends you in mission. And it will cost you sacrifice. Serving the cause of righteousness in an unrighteous world. Serving the cause of mercy in a merciless world. Serving the cause of peace in a violent world. It always will be sacrificial, won't it? Which is why then we need to be empowered. And so Jesus breathes on his disciples the, the breath of life. Life uh, that is in the recreated world, the life of the spirit, precisely to empower them in their mission. And it's an, it's an awesome thing, actually. The very same spirit who is in Jesus, enabling him to do and be all that he did, the very same spirit who's in the mighty apostles, is the same spirit who is in all Christians, empowering for mission. But, but second, we see here the means of mission. You see, the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not simply inviting people to live a different kind of life. It's not 
uh, calling on people to, to live a slightly new and improved version of their old self, to be their best self. That's not, that's not it at all. Now, Jesus knows that deep in the human heart is a sickness that needs to be cured, a spiritual darkness into which his light needs to shine. And so the only doorway, the only doorway into the kingdom of God, this new creation project of God's, is the forgiveness of sins. There can be no other way. It must be by an honest, humble recognition that our souls need the life-giving power of forgiveness every bit as much as our lungs need the air we breathe. And so to humble ourselves before God and for our, we to do and for us to call on others to do something that very few people find it in them. Not to blame shift, not to pretend, not to minimise, not to excuse, not to compare, not to rationalise and not just to sort of press on, but to confess our sins with a broken spirit and a contrite heart and with empty hands and on bended knees as we are about to do at the table simply to receive the Lord's forgiveness and then his empowerment and then to live on mission for him. To be alert in all the ordinariness of life to the opportunity to call people to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Christians are relentlessly hopeful absurdly intentional, constantly aware and active in leading other people to Jesus because all someone has to lose in becoming a Christian is their sins. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Well, let's draw these threads together. The call of Easter Day is to see the risen Jesus. And the invitation this morning as we gather together and sing and worship is to give ourselves to all that his resurrection means and therefore to be on mission for Jesus Christ. And that, that means two things. It means to, to live out and to bring in. And it's both of those things. To live out the reality in our own context that this is the first day of the week that the kingdom of God has come near, that righteousness is finding a home amongst us, to, to live it out in the way that you love your neighbours, in, in the work that you do to contribute to human society and flourishing, in the gardens and art and music that you make, in the gifts you give and the prayers you pray, to live out this new creation life. And at the same time, to bring in, to bring in family members and friends and colleagues and neighbours, anyone that will listen to you to bring in more and more people 
into the joy of sins forgiven and life restored. And as you do this, will you hear the blessing of Jesus on those who live in this mission? Uh, Immediately after Thomas makes his great confession, uh, these words of a true disciple, uh, Jesus speaks of those who make the same confession, but without the advantages of Thomas. Do you remember he said, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. And that's us here this morning. Those who have not seen as Thomas did and yet believe. And Jesus says you're blessed just as the people that you will lead to him will also be blessed. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen.